Hello to all you survivors out there in the wasteland. We're transmitting from our hermetically sealed bunker beneath the nation's capital, and thank you for joining us on whatever scavenged receiver you've got going today. I'm Evan May, writer of The King in Darkness and Bonhomme Seto. And I'm Brandon Crilly, Ottawa-based author of science fiction and fantasy. Our cozy little bunker is keeping us safe from the world outside, where we are in deadly danger for classified reasons. Wait, wait, what, what, what does classified reasons mean? The reason the bunker is sealed today has been redacted. Need to know. We're in the bunker. You can't get more need to know. We're inside. We're safe. Any further information is just going to stress us out. And either way, we can pass the time talking with fellow survivors about stories we love and the tales that come from creating art. I do not agree, but here's who will be joining us in the bunker today. My name is Wabgeja Grice. I'm a Sudbury-based author and freelance journalist, and I speak German. And my name is Adrian Harewood, and I'm an Ottawa-based journalist. I work for CBC TV, and I used to dance ballet. We're both really looking forward to our conversation today, and just as excited that we get to share it with you. Gather round, survivors, and welcome to Broadcasts from the Wasteland. tournament either the world cup or the euro i'm always like tweeting and posting on facebook about cheering for uh, germany and then people will be like weird how's this res guy so into germany you know, what's going on here and then i'll always have to like <laughs> post this sort of uh you know explainer about being in germany for a year and all that right so <laughs> that's very cool i mean while that is true i i regret to report that i actually learned about this uh hearing wob speak on a panel moderated by uh Brandon Crilly. Oh, wait, so I knew this already? <laughs> well, memory is a strange and wonderful thing. Yeah, I mean, in my defense, that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago, yeah. But no, uh, Wob, uh, yeah, you told us a story about uh, about uh, what it was like when you first showed up in Germany and people's expectations there. Oh, of yeah. What it, of, of what you were going to be like and what it actually was. And yeah, that, uh, oh. that stuck in the mind, obviously. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I have no memory of that, so I'll take your word for it. Um, <laughs> okay, so uh, um, yeah, uh, I'm gonna uh, like I said, there's no formal questions, but I'm, I'm gonna I want to start off um, because like kind of like the reason we're here is, is because I discovered on Twitter why like following both uh, both of you, Wab and Adrian, um, that you two knew each other, and I was like, oh my god, um, that's so cool. And so I just I kind of just want to hear about. Um, how you two uh, met at CBC, kind of what you were doing at the time, any, like, like how did that start out? So where, where did you guys first meet is kind of what I'm really curious about just to get started. Hmm. Wob, you want to start? Yeah. Uh, well, I uh, had been working at CBC for about uh, four years. I started in Winnipeg in 2006 and uh, moved back to Ontario in 2010 And I was sort of up in the air about where I wanted to end up, either Toronto or Ottawa. And I basically moved back to Ontario just to be closer to home, right, Um, from Wissaxing, which is near Perry Sound. Uh, I had uh, a lot of family in Ottawa at the time, um, and a job opened up there, and I applied for it. But in the meantime, I was filling in in Toronto, uh, reporting there, and uh, ended up getting this job. 
uh, knew I was going to be working with Adrian uh, and knew of his uh, work, of his background, and was very stoked about that. Uh, but also, shortly after I arrived, Adrian was one of the first people who really reached out to welcome me. And uh, we went out for a coffee, I think, during my first week. And he just said, you know, uh, here's Ottawa. Welcome. Um, you know, here's a little bit about me. And uh, uh, there was just, you know, a camaraderie that was initiated right away. And, you know, essentially a brotherhood. Um, and... I knew what Adrian's values were, uh, not just as a journalist, but as a person in terms of reflecting diversity in media. And that's something that was really important to me, too. And at the time, we were two of the only uh, ver two of very few people of color in the CBC Ottawa newsroom. Right. So um, we had that connection pretty much right away. And uh yeah, I just, you know, looked up to him, admired him greatly and just had a great time working with him for seven years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, it's it's hard not to like Wob. <laughs> he makes it very difficult. You know? <laughs> you know, he makes it very very difficult. Like he's a very very kind of warm and generous and gracious and congenial person, and very genuine. You know, and 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 down to earth, and and open, uh, open to all kinds of people. So it wasn't it wasn't difficult. I would say to to strike up a connection and a friendship with them. And I had a tremendous amount and have a tremendous amount of, of admiration for, um, you know, how he approaches his work, um, the kind of, you know, decency that he has, the kind of empathy that he has, um, the willingness to listen, right. And, and not just, you know, listen in a superficial way, but listen deeply. Right. And that, I think that certainly informs the kind of journalism uh, that he, that he does. So, so when Wab arrived, I think I was, I'd, I'd come back to Ottawa in 2006 uh, to host the afternoon show um, for radio, which is mm -hmm. called All in a Day on CBC Ottawa. Uh, prior to that, I'd been in Toronto. I'd been kind of freelancing at CBC. I'd been, I'd been the kind of proverbial pinch hitter on a number of different <laughs> programs on CBC radio and, and CBC um, TV. Um, I'd done some stuff with um, Newsworld. I'd, I'd used to fill in for a show called Counterspin years ago. And then I'd, I'd uh, used to fill in for Metro Morning and, and uh, Here and Now, and I uh, did As It Happens and the current couple of different programs. So coming back home to Ottawa in 2006, was, was, uh, it was a bit of a homecoming. Um, and, but I was coming home also to uh, a newsroom uh, that, that was very warm. And, and there were a lot of, uh, you know, there were a lot of good folks, a lot of talented folks, a lot of folks that I consider to be my friends. Um, but I'll also note that it's, it's not the most diverse mm -hmm. newsroom, as, as Bob was pointing out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's it, that's something that I think has been getting better over the years. But at the time, and certainly when Bob arrived, as he mentioned, uh, there weren't many of us there. Uh, and and I think that 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 representation piece I know is important to Bob, and is as in, is important to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that we both kind of recognize that. And I think you know Bob. Uh, alluded to the fact that I think we share a lot of similar values. So I think, you know, we kind of gravitated towards each other. And I tell a lot of bad jokes. And, and Bob, <laughs> you know, Bob sometimes listens to them and laughs. So I tend to gravitate to people who, who affirm me. Yeah. Well, for me, that was uh, learning dad jokes, you know, and I since became a dad in that time. Oh, so no. Adrian set me up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, dude. But. <laughs> um, is yeah. like, 
I just, is, is something you said there, Adrian, just now that um, the idea of like of like really listening and deeply listening is that not common in journalism? Like that's sort of thing that I would expect a lot, like the sort of quality a lot of journalists to have. Like, but is it? Do you find that that's rare? I wouldn't say it's rare. I, I think I would say when I when I was, um, you know, when I was suggesting or when I was describing Wob as being a deep listener, mm-hmm. I think that what it comes down to is is he recognizes the well. First of all, he recognizes people, right? Like oh, really recognizes them. So he pays attention, right? And he he honors them. He kind of honors their humanity. And I'm not saying that other people don't do that, but I think there's a quality of um, engagement that 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 some folks have, and and it's it's not it, it it's 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 something I think that you can hone. It's something that you can learn, but it's also a gift, right? And and I think mm-hmm. that that Wob and I'm not trying to you know, butter him up or be right? That's all this has been so far. Well, but I think he, he, he has that quality, right? Like he, when he's listening to you, you, you feel as if you're being listened to, right? He, when he's looking at you, he's looking at you, right? He's not looking away. He's present. He's immersed in the moment. Uh, and, and not all of us, you know, necessarily have those kinds of qualities. And, and, and I think that certainly as journalists, it helps us to become better journalists. I think it helps people to, to ask better questions. Uh, it certainly makes the person with whom you're, you're speaking, the, the person that, that you're interviewing, um, it makes them feel um, as if they matter, right? And, 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 as if they, and, and as if they can trust you, right? And that, and that you have their, their, their best interests at heart and that you're not, you won't harm them, right? And I, and I think that as a result then, um, the, the, the deep listener tends to elicit more uh, quality information, better stories. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And um, thank you, Adrian. I appreciate your kind words. And, and I feel the same way about you. And I think that's why we were able to establish such a good uh, good relationship, uh, both working and sort of, uh, I guess, fraternal in some ways too, right? Um, just to touch on what you said, Brandon. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that there is generally a lack of listening um, qualities in in a general newsroom. But from a perspective of a so-called marginalized uh, background, uh, there's more listening you have to do. There's a bit more work you have to do when you're dealing with stories, especially about so-called marginalized people. Um, and if you're from, I think the dominant sort of majority, uh, you don't necessarily have to consider all of those things all the time. But if that's the community you're from, uh, you carry the weight of that with you no matter what. And you really have to spend a lot more time, I think, being careful with how you represent not just people from your own community, but people from other marginalized communities too. Because you know what it's like to be on the outside looking in and properly try to convey the truths and realities of that perspective to mm. a dominant sort of perspective that is not that familiar with them, right? Um, so I think journalists from that dominant perspective, you know, are, are already embedded in the majority sort of uh, notion of what it means to be Canadian. And they only have to step outside of that randomly whenever there are scientist stories from those particular communities, right? Uh, but mm. we live that all the time, you know, even after our stories filed, we go home at night and we're still sort of, uh, I don't want to say teeming, but we're still, I guess, energized by those stories and by those emotions too, you know. Um, but some other people have the privilege of turning that off, you know. So, um, you know, I see that as, as just being tuned into 
uh, I guess the reality is from outside the dominant perspective, right? And, and right. you know, when Adrian talks about listening in, in that way, um, that's what I listen for too, you know, like I listen in a careful and cautious way and, and also in a protective way, I, I think in some ways, you know, so yeah, it's just, you know, those are just part of the realities of, of coming into um, a setting that is is not that diverse, you know, and, you know, that mm-hmm. that is no fault of the people at the ground level doing those things. It's a systemic problem, as, as you know, we've seen discussions happen a lot over the past year. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Has that, um, or sorry, Adrian, go ahead. No, I, I think the truth also is that, that and I, I think that this is what Wa was getting at. I think that, you know, we're probably connected to community in a different kind of way. Right, so mm-hmm. so that the community lives in us, and we are of the community, and and we're we're trying to reflect the community, mm-hmm. and we feel that responsibility uh, of the community. The community places a lot of faith in us. Um, it means something that we are present at CBC in the CBC yeah. newsroom, right? Like I, I think about all those those aunties, you know, those 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 folks of my parents' generation, right, who remember a time when folks who looked like them weren't given opportunities to, mm-hmm. to work at a place like CBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so they appreciate the fact that you are there, uh, but they also have expectations of you. Right? <laughs> they have expectations of you. And, 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 but, but it's, it's okay. You, you should have those. Like, those yeah. expectations are, are not something that one, um, you know, I don't run away from those. Like that, that it's something that I embrace be, because we are, trying to um, carry on the work, right, mm. that the previous generations did to make space for people like ourselves. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's also part of, that's also part of it. How, how much pressure do you feel from that, that expectation that, you, that like either of you, like, is it, and, and has that changed over time? um in your like career in journalism like the level of expectation the level of pressure that you feel and like has it shifted at all if that makes sense well i would say uh, i definitely felt it too um and it's very complicated because if you're the only one of your community or the only one of your background in a particular newsroom uh, and your community knows that, uh, you're mm-hmm. first and foremost accountable to your community, right? So that responsibility plays out in a bunch of ways. Um, first, you know, as the journalist, it's up to you to do that story properly and to accurately convey your community. Uh, and then, you know, it's up to you to ensure that your colleagues, the others in the newsroom, do that work properly as well. Mm-hmm. And all eyes are on you from your own community being, you know, the only one in there, right? And as yeah. soon as your organization messes up, that comes back to you because you're the one there, you know. And and so, you know, your responsibility is to make sure that your colleagues are aware of the realities and, you know, of the proper terminology, of the history and so on. Um, because as soon as there is a mistake out there, um, your community members are going to go come to you and say, hey, what's going on with CBC? You know, you guys messed that story up. Uh, mm. what, what kind of work are you doing there to make sure that that doesn't happen again kind of thing. Right. Um, and I think that's, I think that's totally cool. Um, I, I bore that responsibility proudly, you know, and, and, you know, as, you know, someone who chose to get into that field, I was prepared for that. Right. Um, but like, those are some of the other, I guess, um, responsibilities that a lot of you know mainstream sort of white canadian journalists don't Mm -hmm. have to worry about you know Um, but it's up to us 
to do uh, damage control internally, um, to be the outward facing uh, journalists for our particular communities, you know, representing places like CBC and so on. Right. So, yeah, there are a bunch of multiple layers to that. Um, I would say, though, those expectations have, I guess, um, eased a little bit or they've become a little more uh, understood uh, because of an increase in voices. And I, I speak only from an Indigenous perspective, right? There are mm-hmm. more Indigenous journalists within places like CBC. Other private media are taking on their own initiatives to accurately, uh, you know, report on communities and so on and to get more journalists into the fold. So um, I think, uh, by and large, in general, Indigenous communities across Canada are, are becoming more aware of how media can serve them uh, because it's been a damaged relationship from the get-go, right? There's been a distrust, mm-hmm. uh, rightfully so, um, of media from Indigenous communities because, you know, it just hasn't, media just hasn't properly shown the realities of Indigenous people in this country for, for decades since its inception, mm-hmm. right? But now I think people are understanding that, you know, these are tools that we can use to uh, to raise awareness, to build better relationships and so on. Yeah. yeah. And I would say, I, I don't think I ever saw it or I've never seen it as being a burden. Okay. Um, you know, I, I saw it as, I always saw it as being an opportunity, a responsibility and a joy mm-hmm. as well. Okay. You know, there is so much joy that I get from the work that I do. I get an opportunity to, to, to speak to all kinds of people. I get an opportunity to to also help to frame stories as well. Mm-hmm. Like part of the reason why I even came to journalism, you know, I, I didn't, I never imagined myself as a journalist, mm-hmm. you know, coming to journalism was always about, or, or journalism was a kind of a tool, right? Like journalism was a tool to raise consciousness. It was, it was a tool to kind of change the frame, right? It was a tool to, to push back against the ways in which, you know, stories about our communities were being mistold, mm. you know, or misrepresented, right? right, yeah. right? So, so we were we were there. At least I saw myself being present to uh, engage and 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 to use the opportunity to to move things in a different kind of direction uh, and and come at it at at, at at stories from a different angle uh, and and ask maybe some different kinds of questions, right? So. Um, you know, I, I, I relish the opportunity that, that, that being in, in, in the space that I'm in offers me. Uh, and I recognize the, the power of the platform that I have, you know, I, I have some power and, and, um, and, and again, I, and I don't say that in a way, <clears throat> when I say I have power, what I mean is that I have some agency, right? So I have the, I have the ability to speak, uh, and I have the, the ability to, to bring stories to the fore that might not be brought there to the fore have i not been there mm-hmm. right and i'm sure that that you know i know you know when wob was in the newsroom it was a very different newsroom it was a very different newsroom because he was there he was bringing mm-hmm. stories to the table uh that we weren't covering right and 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 some of those stories have fallen off since he's left that's the truth uh-huh. right he had contacts in community you know community members trusted him uh, so they would come to him because they knew that that if he if if Wab, if he were telling the story, the story would be told well and told properly, and to, mm-hmm. and and it would be uh, nuanced, right? And it and it would have that kind of of complexity that so often is missing from some of the storytelling that we see and that we hear mm-hmm. and that we read. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate Adrian noting that, and and I worked really hard to try to. Um, build those relationships and and be a trusted person, right? But I was empowered by people like Adrian. 
um, not just in the newsroom that I was working in, but throughout the entire CBC network, because there is, I would say, a relatively close-knit community of BIPOC journalists who uh, want to ensure that uh, there is proper representation and there is proper coverage within uh, the CBC network. And, you know, not just the work we're doing internally, but, you know, obviously the journalism that we're uh, putting out there because that's our job, right? Um, so, yeah, you know, I... I, I I'm sometimes dismayed that there still isn't some representation that needs to be there in a lot of CBC newsrooms. Uh, there is still a, a long way to go. Um, I would say, you know, these discussions really became a lot more pronounced, uh, thankfully, uh, but tragically due to the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis almost a year ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the wake of that, uh, we saw a lot of people speaking up about systemic racism in basically all realms, all professional realms. And then, you know, you saw a lot of journalists um, right across North America talking about, you know, the, their realities of being sort of solitary, being the only ones speaking up for these stories in these communities and the pressures they felt from, you know, their superiors and, you know, a, a management and executive level that was not diverse at all or not reflective of you know our communities here in Canada especially right so yeah I saw a lot of reporters speaking out about the systemic racism they endured throughout their careers and and that wasn't really eye-opening because I knew that existed uh, but mm. seeing so many people uh, speak out uh, so candidly about that it was just um, you know it, it felt like a bit of a reckoning and and I hope it has been you know I hope there have been changes uh, you know in the past year uh, but it also coincided with my own exit from daily journalism too right so yeah. um, uh, I, I was feeling you know I had a I had a great career at CBC you know I was there for 14 years had amazing opportunities met some wonderful people worked uh, in great newsrooms um, got to be a part of some really awesome, I think, uh, even revolutionary projects, you know. Uh, But at the end, as these things were happening, I was feeling like a lot less nostalgic as, you know, my days were counting down. And um, yeah, I was feeling, you know, a a bit angry that so many uh, people were expressing their frustrations or felt that they had to in such public ways because nothing had changed over the course of their careers. Right. Mm. And I thought back to all the young indigenous journalists that I saw pushed out of the industry because they didn't feel welcome uh, because they didn't feel supported because they felt totally alone. And, and I thought like, what, what a hostile industry, what, you know, this is, this is a, a profession that purports to speak truth to power and purports to, you know, represent Canadians and especially CBC, like that's supposed to be the mandate of CBC. But if it's a place where young Indigenous journalists especially don't feel at home, um, then none of that is true. Uh, it is then it, it is an unfortunate sort of outcome. Um, and, and maybe uh, it's not an accurate sort of way to present itself as as a news organization. If, you know, in general, news organizations in general, if people don't feel at home there. Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so those are some of the issues that have come up for me in the past year. But again, you know, I I believe in journalism. I believe in the CBC. I support the CBC. I always will. Um, I just hope we get to a place where uh, people don't feel like they have to cut their careers short because they don't feel welcome. Adrian, when you're talking about um, uh, power and agency, and and it kind of ties to what you were just saying, I was thinking about teaching, which I think we're all doing right now. Your course at um, Carlton is still ongoing right now, Adrian. 
Yeah, it is. How much does, like, when you're working with young people, I know in Wab's case, it, it's young writers right now, but how much, like, like all of what, what both of you are talking about in terms of, like, the issues that are still present and, and you know, wanting people to have long and successful careers and, and, and enjoy their experiences, how much is that part of, like, in your mind as you're educating young people, either in journalism or in writing? Like, is it there all the time? Like, like and, and, and how does that feed the way that you teach? In terms of like recognizing the um, the challenges of working in, in, in these spaces, is that is that what you're? Yeah, kind of exactly. or or like I'm trying to like to me again, and I, I speak from obviously a very different experience, um, yeah. and so like for me, like I find when I'm teaching my students in Canadian history, I tend to talk a lot about um, all things that have happened in Canada historically that are kind of horrible, and I find like I have to work really hard not to paint a really pessimistic picture about about Canada, if that makes sense. And so yeah. I'm just I'm just wondering if that like if that's a challenge for either of you as as educators specifically. Yeah, you know I think what um, you know I try to tell tell the students that we need them. Oh, interesting. Right? Okay. Like we and when I say we need them, I mean this this territory, this space, right? Like we, yeah. the society, the society needs them. The, the society needs their brilliance and needs their imagination and needs their perspective. Right, um, yeah. and, and desperately needs needs it in order to to become, you know, whatever society we imagine ourselves to be. In order in order to become that, right, mm-hmm. we need to work, and we need we need we need more intelligence. Uh, I don't mean just smarts, right? I, I mean yeah. when I when I talk about intelligence, I mean like we need the kind of pool of knowledge that people have access to. Right, we need the kinds of the, the 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 range, the array of stories that people can bring to this to, to the table, mm-hmm. um, because representation ultimately it's not just about feeling good, and it's mm-hmm. not just about quote unquote just reflecting the society back to itself. It's also about good journalism, right? I, like when, yeah, yeah. when your when your newsroom doesn't reflect the diversity of the society, you're not going to tell stories correctly, right? You're not you're you're not going to ask the right questions. Yeah. You're not sometimes going to know when to intervene or when not to intervene, right? You are going to end up making a lot of mistakes and errors, and you are going to cause harm, right? So it's in our collective interest, right, that that more of us, right, are present, uh, and, and so that's what I want to impress on the students how how much we we need them uh, to engage and mm-hmm. to intervene, right, and to change the frame. Uh, and, and to tell different kinds of stories, um, you know, and, and it really is in the interests of all of us. It's not, it's not just about BIPOC folks. It's about white folks too. I'm yeah. saying, you know, it's cliche, but we, we actually are all in this together. Like we actually are our brothers and sisters keeper, right? Like we actually, in, in, you know, we, we understand the kind of existential challenges that we're facing as a planet, right? Like if we don't figure things out, this, this thing is going to blow up. We're going to destroy ourselves. So we yeah. need to kind of figure things out. Yeah. Right. And, and, and figure out how we can kind of marshal our resources to, to, you know, create that, that world that, 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 that you know, that, that saying, I guess the world social forum used to use, have that saying, you know, another world is possible. Mm. Right. So, so that world that we're trying to create, like the world that I'm trying to create, and I know that Wab is trying to create, like I, I want my kids CBC, we all have a stake in CBC, mm. right? Like my kids own the CBC as much as Carol Off's kids own the CBC, 
right? Or as much as Michael Enright's kids own the CBC, like my kids have a right to be there as much as their kids do, right? My kids have a right for their stories to be told properly, just like Peter Armstrong's kids have a right to, to have their stories told properly, right? Um, and and I am, I'll be damned right, if anyone tells me that I don't belong there, right? And, the, and, the, and that, you know, people who look like me should not be in decision-making positions and should not be in gatekeeping positions, right? Because that's also been a kind of a chronic issue, um, you know, at a place like CBC, but many different institutions in this society, right? That, that we are present, sometimes maybe in front of the camera, but we're not necessarily making the final decisions, right? Or we're not necessarily determining uh, the agenda, right, for the, 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 uh, the network, right? So we, we need to be present there as well. So that's what I tell students, right? Like I tell the students that, that unless they are there, we are not going to be our best selves, right? And that's why we need them there. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, you know, having that diversity at the, at the upper levels uh, just reminds me of this meme that I saw my wife share recently. And it's just like this, this pyramid of emojis, right? You know, like the emojis we use for texting or for whatever else. And uh, I think that the title was something like, uh, this is what diversity looks like to upper management or something like that. So on the lower level, it had like, you know, different brown faces and women and, and yeah. so on. But then the one up had like all white faces, but one woman. And then the ones up higher just had all white dudes, right? So yeah, like, yeah. that is for sure, you know, totally reflective of some of the ongoing issues we have with with representation, because it really needs to be at those gatekeeping decision-making levels before, you know, there really is effective change, I think, uh, because mm -hmm. the people at the lower levels will just get burnt out and they don't last, you know. Um, I know very few people who have retired as journalists, uh, Indigenous people, I mean, who have retired okay. as journalists in, in mainstream organizations because they just don't last, you know. They get burned out and get tired of all, you know, the BS that they have to deal with over and over and over again, right? Uh, but yeah. that said, uh, getting back to Adrian's point about reminding young people especially, uh, there has been great progress made, you know. Um, when I was a teenager, uh, I didn't see any Indigenous reporters on, on TV at all. You know, um, mm -hmm. so I just didn't think that was a viable career option for me. I just thought that wasn't the place for me as an indigenous person. And you sort of just accept it, you know, when you're a so-called marginalized person that, okay, you know, I'm, I have to continue to exist on the outskirts. You know, I, I, I there's no place for me there. Um, so I may as well not engage. But now, you know, my kids are growing up seeing uh, people of color in all realms, in all sort of media, um, you know, as celebrated authors, as popular musicians, as, you know, um, headlining actors and so on, right? So, yeah, you know, um, despite all the challenges that are ongoing, you know, my kids are growing up in a different world than I grew up in. And they know that there are people like Adrian on TV and, and on the radio and so on. And uh, they, like my older son, saw me hosting a radio show at CBC here, right? Like he knows that that's a realm that we have inhabited and that he can inhabit as well. And that's what I try to express to young people too. Um, not just young people, but aspiring, you know, journalists or writers that, uh, it's it's going to be hard no matter what. Um, but, you know, don't forget about your network. Uh, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to the veterans because they've been there. You know, they're the ones who can help talk you through these initial challenges. Because I had mm -hmm. 
I had people like Adrian, I had people like Duncan McHugh. Um, I had peers my age, like Connie Walker and, and Michael Dick, um, you know, coming up through the CBC at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. And we relied on each other, you know, even though we were all in different places, you know, we were able to connect virtually when we needed to, to uh, help each other through these challenges that we dealt with on a regular basis. So, you know, that network is only going to get stronger. Uh, the voice is only going to get louder. And for subsequent generations, you know, we will get to that point of, of I guess, this proper representation, this, this benchmark or this critical mass that you know everybody aspires to so yeah i I stay hopeful absolutely what what i would add though is that representation though while important and useful can only get you so far Mm. right and Mm. sometimes you know sometimes these organizations these institutions are so rife with contradictions right that they sometimes need to be destroyed, <laughs> right? Yeah, or we, need, nice. we need to start all over again, yeah. right? So some, some, so sometimes some institutions, the foundations are so rotten yeah. that mm. maybe they can't be reformed. And yeah. we, need to, we need to imagine, we need to create something different. We need yeah. to create something new. Uh, and, you know, I believe in investing energy in trying to uh, make, you know, make organizations better. Right. And I, and I do believe that, you know, and I, I've invested time, but I also think that, that there can come a time when you've invested enough. Yeah. Right. When you've <laughs> enough, invested enough energy and, and investing more is harmful to you. Right. It can become destructive. Yeah. Um, and, and so you need to kind of find a space where you can thrive. Yeah. Right. The fact is that we're only on this, this earth for so long and, and mm-hmm. we need to figure out how we want to spend our time and where we want to invest our energy. Uh, and, and and so I'm just saying that to you know or to 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 uh, make the point that that organizations institutions are organic, right? They mm-hmm. live and they die sometimes, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. and we have to we have we can't be afraid of that, you yeah. know, because sometimes creating something new is exciting and mm-hmm. it gives us you know new opportunities. Uh, and we and and one of the things that I. Um, you know, like one thing that I admire about Wab is that he's willing to take risks. He's willing to take a risk, right? Mm-hmm. Leaving your full-time job at CBC, you have a family, you have mortgages to pay, right? <laughs> well, I'm not sure how many mortgages. He, he probably has lots of mortgages. More, 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 I just have one. I'm sure Wab has plenty, right? But, but you, know, you have a mortgage to pay, but you, you, have, you have responsibilities, right? So leaving... It's a somewhat cushy job being a host, yeah. right? But mm-hmm. you have benefits. Not everyone in this society has benefits, mm-hmm. right? Not everyone in this society has vacation, mm-hmm. right? We have a lot of support, you know, working at a place like CBC. Um, so to leave that position is a big deal, mm-hmm. right? In the prime of your career and, and moving in a different direction, mm-hmm. like that takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of gumption and, and it take, and it, it's something that I think is really, really admirable. And so I want students to understand that they can be the author of their own story, mm-hmm. right? Like they don't, they don't have to follow the script, yeah. right? And, and they don't have to be satisfied. I, I think that like, it's dangerous to become complacent mm-hmm. um, and, 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 and too safe. And I'm, I'm saying this to myself, like I need to interrogate myself as well, yeah. as, as well right? Like I'm sa- I have to ask myself, am I just going along to get along, right? And, and could I be doing more? And are there other spaces that I could be occupying where I could bring more of myself, mm-hmm. right? Or I could learn more things, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so Wob's actually had that experience. I'm, like I'd like to learn from him about, <laughs> about what that's like, like taking that leap, 
right? Be, be, because it's not it's not something that most people would 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 do, right? Most people are are too afraid mm-hmm. to try something else. What would you move on and do? Like in a world yeah. where you're feeling brave and and you're like, okay, I'm going to move on to something else in journalism. Like, do you have a do you have a novel in you? Uh, do you want to like follow Wob in in that sense? Do you would it be something completely different? Like, what would the what would the the the, the brave new frontier for for Adrian look like if you were if you felt ready? Well, I'm, I'm never going to be the novelist that Wob is. <laughs> <laughs> None of us are going to be the novelist that Bob is. Let's I'm be honest. A, I'm not under any illusions. I, I know my, I know, I know my limitations. You know, I'm 50 now, and, and in fact, I noticed that that old guy dig that that Bob gave, where he said, "My peers, the young people, like the Connie Walkers." He wasn't talking about me and Duncan McHugh. That was a kind of an old guy. That was a very subtle old guy dig that I that I that I, I caught. Um, but yeah, you know, like I'm interested in all kinds of things. I, I'd like to, I'd like, sure. I'd like to write. I, I love to write. I'd like to write more. I'm, I'm really enjoying, um, the teaching experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of, part of unlatching yourself, like part of, part of, um, you know, moving to a d- different space is, is not being sure of what's, what your next step is sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't know. Sometimes you don't know what you're capable of until you make that, that move. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I don't know, you know, but I, but, you know, but I'm, I'm interested in all kinds of, you know, I've, I've always had a lot of different kinds of interests. Um, you know, I'm interested in all kinds of things. I love working with, with, with young people. Mm-hmm. I used to work as a, as a youth worker in high schools, oh, cool. uh, in Toronto. Uh, I really enjoyed that work. Um, you know, I used to work as a rickshaw runner in the Bywood market. I, no way. I can't, I'm, that was like 50 pounds ago. Much if I can do that, much if I can go back to do that, you know. But I'm, you know, I'm interested. I'm, I'm interested in all kinds of things, and and um, but, but probably particularly education. You know, I think that's probably a, a direction that I'd be interested in going, going nice. in at, at some point. Yeah. When yeah. at what point were you a youth worker, Adrian? Um. Yeah. So. So. Oh, when was that? So years ago, so this, how I became a youth, I was a youth worker in the early 2000s. So I used to manage, I used to be the station manager for the McGill radio station, okay. CKUP. Uh, and I was manager there from 96 to 99. I moved to Toronto in 99 and I became a, a youth worker that year. Um, okay. And so I worked with a program that's called the Change Your Future program. And it was, uh, I worked as a kind of a counselor for students and, and they called them at the time at risk students. Yeah. Um, and, and so I worked with, uh, I worked at about five different high schools in Toronto and I basically ran workshops and did a lot of kind of one-on-one counseling. I'm not a professional counselor, but, but, but I guess they thought that I had some skills okay. <laughs> and, so, and they, so they hired me, <laughs> nice. they hired me. Um, and so, yeah, I did that job for three or four years cool. while I was in Toronto. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So That's cool. very rewarding, really cool. gratifying work. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine. That was uh, part of the reason I asked is because um, around this 1999, I got to think back, around the same time, my dad would have been working for the city of Toronto. He was uh, manager of a addictions treatment center and, and uh, homeless shelter in Toronto for a long time. That was, was the bulk of his career when I was a kid. Um, and so you were like two things that are kind of adjacent to each other in the city of Toronto um, in terms of supporting um, populations that need support. Um, in the city, so that was cool. that's just a, a kind of weird little overlap there, which is kind of cool. Cool. Yeah, and I, I was mainly working like most of the students were. I would say most of them were African Canadian. Most of them were okay. most of them were black students. But yeah. I, I worked with a range of different students. Right. Okay. You know, in that in that project, yeah, it was great. I, I that loved it. Awesome. Yeah. 
Um, mm. I love. I, I, I'm loving listening to it, like what both of you are saying. It feels very philosophical, uh, particularly Adrian. Like, like, it, like, have you studied philosophy? Or do you like it, a lot of what you're saying feels like it's steeped in a kind of a philosophical outlook on things. Um, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, you know, my, my, well, like maybe like my, my, my academic training. So I did political theory and history. That oh, okay. was my, that was my kind of background. And I, yeah, I guess I've always been, I guess I've always been interested in, uh, in theory, but that's, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm, man, I, Listen, I don't get this kind of affirmation at home. Like, like I, I feel like I, <laughs> that's what we do here, man. Kind of, <laughs> can I hang out even longer? Like, yeah, this, this, sure. Anytime. <laughs> whenever you're attached to philosophy, you know that somehow that kind of just elevates you. You know, yeah, like, yeah. I feel elevated. Right? <laughs> no, but it, like it, kind of this yeah. idea of destruction, like like you said, in terms of like like sometimes yeah, you need to totally create something new. Terrifies everybody. Like I work in education, we don't change anything in education ever. Like we're, we're teaching the same way or like, you know, the same setup that we've been doing since the fifties, like aside with, with a few subtle changes, but mm-hmm. the same framework is still there, at least in the high school level, like it, and, and to change anything fundamental takes forever or just doesn't happen. Um, and I think it's, yeah, cause people are afraid of, of, of any sort of syst- like systematic change because they, they get used to, oh, well, I'm going to do things this way. Um, they don't look at, 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 you know, yeah. destruction as something positive. Yeah. You know, I think, I think, um, you know, we, we probably need to locate ourselves and, and just be honest. Like, like I came to journalism as an activist, right? Like I, yeah. I was a political activist. That's, that's my, that's where I come from. You know, when I was, when I was in university, my first year of university was, was 1989 and, and Mandela was still in, in jail in 1989. Yeah. You know, like I was part of the anti-apartheid group at, 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 at McGill. I was, I was part of the, the black students network yeah. and we were about change. You know, like one of, one of, one of our leaders um, and, and someone who influenced generations uh, was a woman named Mariam Kaba. I don't know if some of you might know Mariam, but Mariam Kaba is probably the leading kind of prison abolitionist, okay. you know, one of the leading in, in North America. Her, her book is now, it's incredible. Like she, she, um, her book is on the New York Times bestseller list. Mariam Kaba is one of the best kind of organizers of her generation. Like she, she's the best organizer I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I had the I had the honor and the the privilege of, you know, working with her in in university. Like she was the most important leader on campus at McGill in wow. the early nineteen nineties, right? Like she's a phenomenal person, phenomenal organizer, yeah. um, and um, and she and and so she taught she taught a lot of us, yeah. right? Like, like even though she was a young person, she taught a lot. And so it's always been about change. Right, like it's always been about trying to, you know, create space and and make a better world, and mm. and you know, I know that's probably not politic to say. As a CBC, no, but as a CBC journalist, you're not supposed to have politics, mm-hmm. right? You're not supposed yeah. to come from anywhere, right? But the thing is, we all come from somewhere. Like we all have history, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Everyone. Uh, everyone yeah. and and if and if you are claiming to be neutral, those are your politics, right? Yeah. Because you're you're an, you're an activist for the status quo, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right? 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 So so um, so that's what, no, no. I'm not saying that I'm still a political activist, but I'm saying that that's where that's what's informed me. That's where I come from. Those are my those are my roots, and so mm-hmm. it 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 affects how I move in the world. You know, Wob has his own story. You know, mm-hmm. Wob has a story. 
his, his family has a story, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That that informs how he is and how he how he approaches things. You know, we we all come from you know we all come from history. We all come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm talking a lot. I'm becoming that old guy. No, I, that old, no. that old, that old West Indian guy. You know, who I used to laugh at. We, I'm we, becoming we, like my my father's generation. Oh my gosh! Does this kind of creep up on you a little bit? Yeah, man. I'm, I'm becoming like that. Yeah, but I'm loving it. I'm loving it, man. I'm I'm yeah. loving hearing your story. This it's so awesome. Yeah. Well, it just reminds me of what what I've learned from you, and uh, you know, just uh, our, our just how, how fortunate CBC is to have you in the fold. You know, and um, I don't want to peel back the curtain too much on some of our internal discussions, but Adrian has been the leader in a lot of internal discussions about fixing things within the CBC, and uh, a lot of things may not have happened without his leadership, you know, and. Uh, there are many times when I was ready to give up. I would have quit way before I did. Uh, but, you know, just seeing Adrian fight for what was right within, you know, I guess keeping up that spirit of activism while not necessarily being a quote-unquote activist, right? Like, you know, uh, speaking truth to power, as we mentioned before. And, and yeah, that activism is at the root of basically everything I do too, you know? Like, mm-hmm. some of my first memories were of going to protests with my parents, right? Standing up for the land. Uh, the the siege at Oka happened when I was 11 years old, right? And, mm-hmm. and my dad went there to help the warriors and shuttle them around and no things way. like that. So, yeah, that's basically in my DNA. And, you know, wow. w- when you come into these settings as a journalist and you're supposed to put those things on the shelf and be quote-unquote neutral or objective, mm-hmm. like, you, you don't erase those things at all. They're still a part of you. And I think engaging as a journalist in these so-called neutral settings um there's a strategy that you have to employ and there's one that i did too uh where you also advocate for these voices but do it uh, i guess under the guise of neutrality that you've been sort of confined to right and that's mm-hmm. that's not just you know getting both sides or that sort of fallacy that's supposed to be there it, it, i think it's more about um, the humanity that is your job to convey, you know, by allowing people to speak up on their own and give them a platform. Because speaking of Indigenous experiences specifically as they've been, you know, represented in the mainstream media, it's either as, you know, a perpetrator of violence, a victim of violence, uh, an abuser of drugs, or um, some other sort of tragic outcome or tragic Mm -hmm. existence, you know. And Indigenous people have never really had the agency to speak for themselves and to uh, flip those scripts and, you know, bust those myths about Indigenous realities in this country. Um, But advocating for those people is just giving them the platform, letting them speak about what it's like to grow up on the reserve, what it's you know, the realities of them being positive, you know, harmonious places for the most part, you know, but also it's, it's about, and this is something Adrian and I talked about a lot when we were working together. It's just about putting black people or indigenous people in everyday settings in your stories, you know, like talking to a black transit user or talking to an indigenous hockey fan, just having them in streeter packages and so on. Right. Like mm-hmm. it may seem like a small thing, but for I think a lot of white people that's stepping outside their comfort zone because they may not be as mm-hmm. familiar with speaking with communities that, are, that aren't their own, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But us just humanizing them in an everyday sense in our everyday society goes a really long way. And, uh, you know, I think it, it's really important to encourage all journalists to do that. But uh, that's where part of the activism and advocacy comes from 
for me mm-hmm. is just allowing people to have that platform, you know, and I can be the conduit for them. And, you know, I, I always uh, was very humbled and very honored to have those opportunities. And, you know, I didn't take those responsibilities lightly at all, you know. So, uh, yeah, those are just, just, that just speaks to some of the ongoing conversations that I think media has to have. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll, I'll say, you know, Wad really broke some ground uh, with, with, with his approach. You know, I remember, and he mentioned transit. Like, I think there was a story that Wad did about transit where he talked, I think it was transit or traffic. Right. Where he just I, I think there were some indigenous folks who were speaking about traffic and it was so revolutionary. Like it was so it was so different. Right. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah. because 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 indigenous communities are, 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 are often just tied to some kind of pathology. Mm-hmm. Right. Like some kind of disaster or some kind of pain. Or, but here you were just talking. It was a banal story. Right. <laughs> this kind of banal story about traffic or transit. But, but of course, indigenous people have to deal with traffic. Right. Of course, they have to deal with transit you know but for whatever reason whatever reason we haven't you know gone to those communities to tell those stories right and so when when wad was doing that i remember watching thinking man you go you go man like yes (laughs) like like, finally um one other thing like i'm glad i'm glad wad referenced his um you know his parents because you know i I was thinking like my my parents were you know my parents are educators Mm. Um, you know, they, they taught at the community college level and the university level, but they were journalists, you know, like they, like in the seventies, they worked for the main English language, black newspaper in this country contrast. And, and as a kid, I used to, and I used to read that newspaper and contrast was like a really, you know, and it, it was an amazing publication, right? Like it was, a, it was, a, it, 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 it covered the local, the national, the international, um, there were folks like Walter Rodney who would appear in that. Walter Rodney was a was a Guyanese historian, revolutionary. Cool. People like Horace Campbell. I remember like Angela Davis would appear in the pages of, of that newspaper. And I can remember as a kid, you know, first coming across the story, and I must have been about nine, uh, around nine years old, of Albert Johnson, right, who was a, a Jamaican immigrant in in Toronto who was killed by the police, and it was a, it was a case of police brutality, mm-hmm. right. And I remember as a kid. Right, the impact that that story had on me, right, uh, and that story has stuck. Like, 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 Wob talked about his his father playing a role at Oka, right, mm-hmm. when he was eleven years old, right. That story of Albert Johnson affected me as a kid, mm-hmm. right. Just like you know, I was nine at that time. You know, my my son is nine, you know, is is nine was nine when when George Floyd was killed, right. right? Right. And he's very much aware of that story. Right. And he will carry that story will stay with him. Mm-hmm. Right. For the rest of his life. Yeah. Right. So those kinds of things help to inform it. it they, they shape who we are. Right. And it's informed the kind of person that I am. And, and, it, and it affects the way in which I might deal with these stories involving, you know, police brutality. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I have a history with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Or I have friends or I know people or, or, or people who've been affected by these kinds of encounters. Right. So I might come at the story with with a different pool of information than some of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that helps to kind of create a, a, a deeper or a, a richer conversation around some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, like it's, it's, to me, it's funny that, that like you both describe yourselves as like Adrian, you said, like, you're you know, not quite a political activist now because I would say you both still are. Like I see, you know, like what you're talking about online, what you're talking about here. And to me, that's. That's still that's activism and advocacy. I don't think you've lost that or, or or moved away from that at all. To me, 
Yeah, but those terms are loaded, you know, like 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 activism and right. and, and and advocacy. It's loaded. Like I just see it as being, and and again, I don't I don't mean to be arrogant, but I, I just view it as being good journalism, mm-hmm. right? right? Like okay. like you're just bringing stories that maybe aren't there, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like like why aren't we talking about those stories, mm-hmm. right? Like why why aren't we talking about what's going on in Palestine, mm-hmm. right? right? Like I'm saying that's an issue, yeah. right? We need to we need to raise it. It's an issue. Why aren't we talking about what's going on in Saudi Arabia? Why aren't we talking about what's going on in the Caribbean? Mm-hmm. Why aren't we talking about what's going on on the East Coast with the Mi'kmaq? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You know, like why? Like why aren't we? We have to, yeah. right? Yeah. If we're, not, if, if we're avoiding it and if we're not talking about it, then it's not good journalism. Yeah. No, that's so. Funny. I don't think it's. I don't think it's being. You know. You know. The people who aren't talking about it. I mentioned being an activist for the status quo. They're being an, they're being activists for the status quo by not having those conversations, mm, right. by not talking about how, by not talking about the sexism which is rife in our institutions, right? By not talking about homophobia, mm. right? Yeah, that's 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 a different kind of activism. Mm, interesting. Right? Okay. So, yeah. so I think that it's it's about it's it's actually just trying to um, um, make the discourse more representative (laughs) and and it's it's, and and richer again Mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah one thing i'd add to that uh you know social media with with all its faults we're all familiar you know we're all engaged online um we all know the problems but i think at the grassroots level uh from an indigenous perspective everyday social media users who are indigenous have really helped steer that conversation and part of that began with the I Don't Know More movement of, of nine, mm-hmm. seven, eight, nine years ago, um, you know, that you had people speaking up uh, about sort of the inequalities and inequities faced by Indigenous communities across the country. And, you know, these discussions were gaining momentum, especially on Twitter, right? And, and what I saw internally at CBC was that, you know, the decision makers and the editorial gatekeepers started taking those discussions a lot more seriously as they saw that sort of momentum build online because that's measurable, mm-hmm. right? You can see how much right. somebody retweets something or how much somebody likes something or, or whatever. And I remember like pitching stories about I don't know more and, and you know, the, the desk sort of humming and hawing, you know, saying, well, what does that mean for everyday people in Ottawa? Uh, but I would just, you know, pull up my phone and say, look how many, you know, tweets this, uh, retweets this comment has about what What's happening here and I, I would say you know I, I will do the story and we can put it online and you'll see how often it gets shared and lo and behold we would do a local story about I don't know more and it would go all over the place you know because people were really mm-hmm. latching on to this movement right so that's an example of I think the grassroots starting to direct those conversations and and you know me just being the person who was in the place that could help relay that message I guess and not in, like in an act advocacy or activist sense but just as you know a, a good journalist you know trying to show what's happening in our communities you know and how why this should matter to canadians and sure enough that discussion really um changed a lot you know i i would say i don't know more and the truth and reconciliation commission's final report is calls to action um are are the two main moments in this country over the past decade that have entirely changed the conversation around indigenous issues and indigenous history 
and so on, right? Uh, the first was, you know, people driven. And the second one uh, was finally the government stepping up and supporting an awareness initiative um, that has really, you know, provided a foundation for basically all realms to adhere to in order to um, make their spaces more positive and more inclusive and, mm-hmm. and more aware, essentially. Right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, you know, just getting back to what Adrian said, it's just a matter of, of combining all of these elements and, and really trying to be a good journalist and, you know, painting a fuller picture of what this country should be. Right. So what, I mean, given the, like, I'm, what are some of like the most interesting or, or wildest stories that either of you have covered in your time in journalism, the ones that like, like that you were actively reporting on or actively involved in that have stuck with you. It doesn't need to be like huge stories, but the ones that like, you're like the one, the ones that have stayed with you over time. I'll, I'll let Adrian go ahead because he has he has a longer career than me. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you both really puzzling this over as I, I put you on the spot. Sean's pulling them shows. I was just waiting for that. I was waiting for that day. I knew it was going to happen. But I'm only I'm only like I'm only nine years younger than you. I'm not, uh, you know you're not that much older than me. Plus you you, you know I would say we could easily be uh, in the same year. You know uh, very youthful, you. like very vibrant as always, Adrian. So <laughs> what do you want now? I want you to I want you to help pay one of my other mortgages that's what I want (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah you know I think you know what I I think one of the greatest kind of experiences I've probably had in journalism was when I wasn't working as a quote-unquote professional journalist but when I was working I used to uh I used to do a program for Radio Ryerson uh, for CKLN. Okay. Uh, I used to have a, I used to contribute to a show called Saturday Morning Live. Um, and in the early 2000s, I, I went down to the U.S. I went down, I went by bus, and I spent about six weeks traveling uh, in the southern United States. And and I just would talk to anybody I came across. Mm-hmm. You know, I I would I was talking to I did tons of interviews on buses on Greyhound buses just talking to ordinary folks, just getting their story, like talking to the person sitting next to me and finding out that he was a, he was uh, in Iraq, you know, he'd been fighting in Iraq. And at a time when no one was talking about the, um, the disaster, right. That the Iraq war was this guy that was sitting right next to me was kind of exposing the whole thing. This was like in 2002, 2003, you know, um, and he, he like and so and what I would do is I would bring these stories back to CKLN and play them on on my Saturday on our Saturday show, um, and but that was some of the most kind of uh, enriching, illuminating, exciting journalism, right? Because you mm. because you realize that that people are incredible, mm. like ordinary people have so many stories to tell, mm-hmm. right? Like in two thousand and four, I interviewed Bill Clinton on 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 the current. Right. Oh, yeah. and, and, and it was, it was like at the time it was a big get, you know, I was filling in for Anna Maria Tremonti and I'd, I had a chance to, to interview Bill Clinton, but I was saying to myself, you know, yeah, that's well and good, but there's so many other stories. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, I, I actually was more jazzed by talking to those ordinary folks than I was to Bill Clinton. I learned a lot more. Right. Yeah. I'm, and I'm not poo-cooing it. I'm not saying it's not important, but you know, I can I can remember being in I was in Mississippi. It was in a place called Itabina, Mississippi. I think it was Mississippi. 
Valley? Is it Mississippi Valley State? I'm just forgetting which university. Mm. And I just came across this woman. Her name was Elsie Dorsey. And she was a teacher at that, that university. And she had an incredible story. Like her story was, she had she was uh, uh, the daughter of sharecroppers, right? Like wow. she grew up dirt poor in the Mississippi Delta, had no education. In the 1960s, she had, I think, six kids and was, was you know, really, really poor. And she was recruited into the civil rights movement. And it changed her life. Wow. And 30, 40, like 40 years later, she had gotten her PhD. And she was teaching at this university. And yeah. she was someone who had started um, health care, like she, community health centers. And she had work, worked in, in prisons in wow. Mississippi, right? And just trying to humanize all the different spaces. And that, to me, was such uh, a gift, right? To, 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 to have access to that kind of story. Just from a person who I would have never met, mm-hmm. right? Right. So, so that to me, like when I think about the most exciting journalism, that's probably the most exciting journalism that, yeah. I, that I've done. No, I love that. Yeah. Cause there's all these, like there are amazing people all over the place that just, that are only known within their, their small community that, that we never come across. I love that. Cause like, yeah, again, I'm, I'm kind of with you on. Not to dominate. Can I just, I should, I should add oh, one please, thing. Yeah. You, know, you know what that taught me? Yeah. You know, it taught me that so many people are not listened to. Yeah. Right. Like every time I asked a person if I could interview them, they said yes. And part of it is because so many people are never asked to tell their story. Yeah. Right. And and so when you when you when you honor them by saying, I actually think that you have something to say. Yeah. Can you tell me your story? They'll do it. And they feel they feel recognized. Right. And and it's it's almost as if you are yeah, you're recognizing their humanity, right? And, And 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 they're feeling affirmed. Right. And, and it makes them feel powerful and it makes them feel as if they have something to, con- to contribute. Yeah. Right. So this, this microphone is a very, very powerful thing. Right. And that, yeah. that's, that's the other thing that that experience kind of taught me, um, you know, what, what this can do for people. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. Tell the story. Yeah. And I think that that's easy for, I mean, I know it's like, like a, as, as an educator or I think in, in, in journalism or in writing, it's easy to forget because, we have access to an ability to speak to people all the time. Like people are li- listening to me every day. Right. And, and, or like, you know, my students, my colleagues, and I think it's easy to forget that, that that's not an opportunity that most people get. I love that. Wob. Now that you've had time to think. I'm putting <laughs> no, uh, I, I was just reminded, you know, when Adrian brought up uh, empowering people with the mic, uh, I saw that exactly happen over the course of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's um, right. uh, public testimonials. Uh, so covering the TRC uh, over the course of, I would say, seven years uh, was definitely the most profound experience of my career. Right. And it was the most rewarding for me uh, and also the most enlightening for me. And, and at the same time, most empowering. Um, it, it really inspired me and uh, reminded me of the resilience of Indigenous nations uh, right across the land. And I guess it would begin with the actual apology of June of 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was working mm-hmm. in Winnipeg at the time, and I was assigned to cover that story uh, for, for the TV news. And of course, everybody knew it was happening. It was going to be a big event. And the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, which is one of the big political organizations in Manitoba, uh, what they did was they booked a big uh, ballroom at the Radisson Hotel in downtown Winnipeg to give people an opportunity to come and watch it, right, on a big screen. Right. 
they weren't sure if anybody was actually going to show up. They're just like, you know, this is what we're making available for community members. If you want to come and join your community and watch this event, uh, come and do it kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so that's where they sent me and a camera operator. Uh, so the apology itself didn't happen until the afternoon, right? So we got there and, and we set up and people sort of slowly started trickling in. Uh, these were elders, you know, residential school survivors. And and mm-hmm. I went up to them and I would say, you know, hey, I'm with CBC News. Uh, would you like to, you know, chat with us about what your hopes are for today or for the future? And, and everybody declined. Everybody said, no, you know, I'm not ready to talk yet. Um, I just want to see what Prime Minister Harper has to say and, you know, be here with my loved ones and so on right so eventually the room totally filled up like about a thousand people in this big ballroom in this hotel so they had to rent another space they had to rent another conference room and then set up another screen there for like the overflow right so uh, there was this huge response you know this big gathering of people to watch the apology so then it happened you know we've all seen the images of you know Harper saying the apology and then all the dignitaries there doing their thing and so on. Uh, Then it was all over and, you know, the TV shut off uh, and we were set up there. And then there was a lineup of people to come up and do interviews with us of all these survivors and elders. Um, Oh, wow. And obviously for a two minute TV story, you can only use so many voices, but everybody wanted to come up and talk about, you know, what that moment meant to them, what their experience was what they wanted for the future and so on. And we just had all these people pouring their, their souls out to us uh, about wow. what that moment meant for them. And it was like this tension just deflating and, you know, this sort of spirit arising amongst these people who finally were absolved of what had happened to them. Because I think, you know, after enduring that abuse and living with it for decades, I think a lot of them believed it was their own fault. You know, they were wrong to be mm-hmm. Indians. They were bad people. But finally, the government took responsibility for what happened to them, right? And, mm-hmm. and they were able to begin healing. And, and that's a process I saw over the course of, of you know, the TRC's uh, ongoing travels to collect testimonials, whether it was in Ottawa, Toronto, or Winnipeg. Uh, just the, the courage I saw of survivors getting up in front of a room full of people to publicly talk about the horrors they endured and mm-hmm. why they didn't want that kind of thing to ever happen to Indigenous children again. And, and just to, to talk about, like, the specifics of, you know, the abuse yeah. was, uh, like, it blew my mind that people were willing to go up and expose themselves like that in order to help other people, you know, to help Canadians learn, uh, but also to ensure that other kids don't ever endure this kind of thing ever again. So, uh, you know, I, I was just so uh, inspired throughout all those moments. And I think for me, um, you know, it, I was fortunate in that, None of that was really uh, that triggering for me. Like uh, none of my immediate family had to go to residential school. You know, Uh, none of my immediate family were apprehended or anything like that. So although, you know, my family did endure a lot of abuse as a result of just the Indian Act and the day school system Mm -hmm. and so on. Right. Um, But I was able to sort of uh, report that and and, and it didn't have too um, detrimental of an impact on, on my spirit, on my day to day. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But every time I had the opportunity to go to a TRC hearing for CBC, it was just, um, I felt like I was a part of history. Uh, yeah. You know, I was honored to be there. Uh, it was a huge responsibility. And I've talked about responsibility a lot over the course of the, our discussion here today. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's really what changed what changed my life, I think. And, and what made me understand the power of speaking one's truth and, and mm-hmm. doing so to educate, uh, to enlighten and to protect 
you know. Um, stories uh, are, are really security. They're shields for us in a lot of ways. And these mm-hmm. survivors uh, spoke their truths in order to protect other people. So, yeah, that's what, you know, I, I just, until I die, I will just feel so fortunate that I was able to um, help uh, some of these survivors relay their realities uh, through CBC and, and through the TRC mm-hmm. by extension too, right? So, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I... Yeah, again, just a major highlight of my life for sure. That's powerful, dude. You know, stories really matter to people, yeah. right? Like, like and I'm like I'm stating the obvious, but you know, when you're part of a when you're part of a dominant grouping, you take it for granted right? mm-hmm. because oh, yeah. your story's always being told, yeah. right? And it's always being told from your perspective, and and you're always able to use your own voice, mm-hmm. right? And 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 so you you maybe don't realize how you're always being reinforced mm-hmm. right by by the stories that are being told in the society and and it's 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 probably why when some of those stories of the dominant grouping have been tied to for so long are challenged mm-hmm. right it is so unsettling to those folks mm-hmm. right so for example when when the story of winston churchill right is challenged yeah. right so Ch- churchill is framed as the savior of of England, mm-hmm. right? And he played he played a significant role in 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 allowing you know that country to continue mm-hmm. and and not to be dominated by you know the Germans by the Nazis, right? And and so he's a he's an iconic figure, mm-hmm. but but he also had a had a role to play in in damaging you know yeah. a lot of folks, mm-hmm. right? And and there and yeah. there are there are people who are involved in anti colonial struggles who have a different kind of story to tell. Mm-hmm. Right about about Winston Churchill. Right for years and years in this country, you know John A. Macdonald is the father. Yeah, yeah. Right, he's the father of Confederation. Yeah. Right, and 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 for those people who um, are are I guess students of Canadian history, right, he played a significant role in helping to create this the, the country you know called Canada. Mm-hmm. Right, but for for other folks, you know. John A. Macdonald played a very, very destructive role, mm. right? And, and and was a destructive force and 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 contributed to erasure, mm. right? And contributed to to decimation, mm. right? And contributed to harm, mm. right? And th- that story is also important, mm. right? That story is also that that's also a story that that we need to hear, mm. right? Um, you know, I think sometimes there's a tendency amongst the dominant group to poo-poo this thing called that we're calling representation right mm-hmm. um but the reason why they poo-poo it is because they're they're represented <laughs> yeah exactly right yeah. and and, yeah. They, and they recognize how how difficult it is when they're um you know the, these people that they've lionized right for their entire lives mm-hmm. are maybe exposed right and 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 people have a different take on them mm-hmm. right that's very very disturbing to them yeah. right um am i am i making sense no like, that I'm, makes perfect sense yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would totally agree and i think both the media and the education system have been complicit in propagating mm-hmm. this myth of canada of being this oh, yeah. kind place that is not like the united states right uh yeah. whereas there have been multiple uh, brutal horrors that the Canadian government has enacted itself, you know? So yeah, to, to sort of challenge that idea is, is to really um, disrupt this uh, essential 
I guess, fundamental belief of Canada being good that essentially is a result of propaganda, you know, like Canadians believing that everything here is good and Canadians are polite and kind and bad things don't happen here and so on. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, as Adrian says, that challenges the dominant narrative about what this place uh, is. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, by by the, the stories emerging of the realities, of course, it's difficult for people who believe that to, to accept. And that's why you have, you know, people like Lynn Bayak denying, you know, the horrors yeah. of residential school and so on, because they just refuse to believe that. Right. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's part of upsetting the balance and, and disrupting uh, some of that power because, you know, creating an institution, even like the CBC or like a school board in a capitalist society is all about acquiring power and, and feeding that yeah. power and letting go of that is really hard for a lot of people. Um, so when mm-hmm. Adrian says, sometimes these bodies have to be destroyed, then they absolutely have to. They are organic things, and sometimes they need to be totally dismantled and then rebuilt, you know? So uh, that's all part of, uh, I think, empowering other people with stories and, and with knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is like a fundamental value of democracy, too. Well, it should be, right? Yeah. You know, of, of, of proper knowledge. So, yeah, it's interesting to, to discuss, absolutely. Yeah. What's interesting for me is, is as a, a history teacher, like when I teach grade 10 history, um, the like day one, I start with Johnny McDonald. I talk about that dichotomy of like of how he how historically he was represented as a figure and kind of everything that we know about him as an individual. And, and you can have those parallel stories. And what's fascinating for me, over, like I've only been teaching high school for nine years now. When I first started teaching, I would, you know, I would do that lesson and, and you know, be talking about um, indigenous issues and the students almost collectively it was the first time they had heard anybody mention residential schools or the 60 scoop or, or uh, Oka or any of these events. And then over time, and it's and it like happened this year with my grade tens, I go, you know, just in the night in the last nine years, I go and I start talking about this event and they already know all the major points. And then we can have the mm-hmm. more critical discussion. And that change has happened. And like, I've taught at a bunch of schools across Ottawa in those nine years as well. Um, that change has happened over the course of the, the last nine years. And so I like we're seeing that shift in terms of what the students are already aware of. And so they that myth has already been broken for them, or it's starting to be broken for them. And they have this kind of realistic understanding of what Canada is. And then we can, like, at least when they get to me, then we can take that step forward. I'm not starting at the basics and breaking that myth for them, which is kind of nice. Um, we can we can move forward from that. So I see that progress happening in them, which is really, really cool to see. Um, and I imagine. This is no Well, I see it is now safe outside again for reasons that are also classified. That's just great. However, we had a wonderful time talking with our fellow survivors today. So thank you to Wab and Adrian for joining us here in our underground safe haven. We'd also like to thank fellow survivor Chris Kesner for providing our intro and outro music, as well as our sound editor June Park for putting the finishing touches on this episode. And a giant thank you to all of you survivors out there for joining us for our conversation today. Stay safe, always ask the important questions, and we'll look forward to reaching you again with our next broadcast from the Wasteland.